call is now being recorded. We are SC Podcast. Gary Pasquis joined by Daryl Rideau. And, uh, Daryl, we're here to break down a game that, boy, in the last week from the time we did our last podcast, a lot has happened in the world of Trojan football. And, a lot uh, has start, starting off with uh, some coaching changes, which we will get to, and then uh, a game on the road, which, uh, as we're sitting here, you and I were talking, getting ready for this thing. And there's a lot of stuff we liked about this game. And we're going to go ahead and break break a lot of this down, but let's let's talk first of all about what happened this last week um, in terms of you know you, you've seen it, you've gone through it as a player. How things can change when mid season, when Clay Helton announced some changes, uh, taking over play calling from T. Martin, no small deal, and then uh, the change at offensive line coach with Neil Callaway leaving and Tib Drevno, truly an offensive line coach, moving from running back coach to adding offensive line. Just just talk about your general feeling going into that game and uh, what, what you thought about those changes. Man, Gary, uh, w- the first thing I thought about when when the word came down from Clay Heldon that he was uh, he fired Neil Calloway, which we all know how he feels about him as a second father figure. And, and right. really that, that presence um, that he was leaning on whether it's for advice or just away from the game, okay? And then you, you, you talk about um, empowering T. Martin and wanting him to be at his best as an offensive coordinator but not quite delivering the way that you need him to and really just turning off this program. Um, for Clay Helton to take over as offensive coordinator on the road in this game, it, it really could have gone mo- a number of ways. And it reminded me, Gary, of – when I came in at USC, playing at USC from 1999 to 2002, while, um, when anyone ever speaks or talks to me, I always highlight the Pete Carroll days, but it was really, it was the Paul Hackett days that this program was starting to remind me of. The erosion of, of the program in terms of the attention to details. And when you start seeing subtle changes like this as a player, you start to wonder, am I next? Am I going to be benched? Or is my position coach going to be benched? I mean, uh, fired? Or mm-hmm. am I going to lose my head coach before the end of the season? What are we playing for? But it's the common presence of of Clay on the road in Corvallis, where historically uh, USC hasn't had the greatest amount of success on a week with so much controversy, so much turmoil, so many questions looming around this program. Where is it heading? Do you have the right coach? You know, what's up with the offense? Questions that not only the coaches had to answer, but many of the players had to answer and address via either Twitter, social media, um, or just walking the halls, uh, 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 you know, on their way to class. But, Gary, the way that USC responded on the road – that first drive, 17 plays, 86 yards, and to cap that off, running the ball, uh, vintage power eye was just – it was phenomenal. And I, I know as we were preparing for this podcast, I couldn't help but gloat in, in just excitement about the possibilities of what can be because of the way that they went about it. They showed versatility, the storytelling that came from Clay, and at that point – I suddenly realized that, Gary, now that I have kids, I'm reminded when I first started driving, maybe 16, 17 years old, and I first got my driver's license, and I used to rely so heavily upon my dad getting me to and from places to where I fell asleep in the passenger seat because I knew that he was going to get me to where I needed to go safely, the experience of my dad as a driver, okay? Well, the same thing can be said about Clay Helen as an offensive coordinator. 
you felt confident with Clay as an offensive coordinator. But when he handed the keys to the program to T. Martin, even though Clay was in that passenger seat, T. did not drive the car or the bus the same way that Clay does. And there's a lot to be said about the experience that comes with Clay's wisdom and the way that he tells a story, the way that he sets up a play, and the balance that he brings to the program. No slight against T, but this program needs that type of experience at the wheel at all times. And that's what I thought we saw against Oregon State. And, 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 and as we were talking, getting ready for the podcast, that, that was the thing that stood out to me. There, there are a lot of people on the We Are SEC message boards, and rightfully so, who are giving the caveat of, okay, it's the Oregon State defense that we did this against. Uh, bottom ranked in the Pac-12, mm. and uh, let, let, let's make sure to get that clear. But when you add in everything that went on this week and that transition, that's the counter that I'm going to give to that. Okay, I accept the fact that it was Oregon State. They're not very good. But we've also seen time when change happens, and it, it takes a little time to adjust to that change. It takes a little time to adjust to the yep. different philosophy. It, it, it um, does. I, I was very impressed when we looked at those numbers of the touchdown drives, USC scoring 35 points in that game, and you sent over the numbers 86, 68, 81, 67, 62. Daryl, that warms my heart. Right, right, right. Now we can't forget about that uh, that extra field goal. So it was thirty eight to twenty one, but, 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 but yes, you know, you're right, you're right, you're right. five solid scores. You, you know what five impressed me the most about this, Gary? The, the, what impressed me the most about it was look. Up until now, JT Daniels has only known the play calling and cadence of T Martin. And so there were times in this game where I thought JT got a little anxious, wanted to get back to throwing hero ball deep down the field, but it was Clay who brought him back to to balance. You know, um, started dialing back up plays, getting that running game going behind Aka Cedric Ware's 17 yard, uh, 17 attempts for 205 yards, and and you follow that up with Bavai Malapii, 16 carries. For what, a buck oh one or something like a that? A buck oh one, a buck oh one, it was, one touchdown. Yeah. I mean, they just kept, it felt like the closest that we've seen to a lightning and thunder, Reggie Bush and Lindell, in terms of just throwing two different style running mm-hmm. backs at mm-hmm. a team and the explosion, the power, and the way that they were finishing plays, you could feel on the road, Oregon State's defense just starting to really feel those hits. It was like body punches. After a while, they just start really feeling the effects of it. And, and I thought that that was the difference in this game, the way that the offensive line responded to those drives, getting up on top of them 21 points. And let's face it, this is a flawed USC team. We know that. And there are some defensive issues that I think there are some correctable areas uh, from, mm-hmm. a, from a personnel standpoint that I'd love for us to touch on. But right now, if we are focusing on this offense, Oregon State did exactly what most of the other teams have done, but USC did not chase the cheese. They invited USC to to pass the ball. They put eight in the box. They loaded up. They were adjusting, moving from an over um, defense into an under front to truly to really try to invite uh, JT Daniels to to throw the ball. But when he threw the ball, Gary, what I saw was I saw a lion's routes, which are double slants. I, I saw quick hitch passes. I saw a lot of different things that helped JT get that ball out in rhythm. And with the effectiveness 
of last week, Jack Sears, and how he, um, from that um, um, RPO formation, was able to get the ball out and hit those quick slants. We saw a little bit of JT doing that, which JT did exceptionally well in modern day. So this is, these tools are not something that JT is unfamiliar with. We're now seeing a collection of his talents. Because under center, I think he can be as exceptional as he is out of shotgun. Without a doubt. And let, let's, I want to make a quick mention of one thing. In that Stephen Carr left the game with an injury, as did Michael Pittman. But we, we talk about Aka Cedric and Bavai, and their work was certainly worthy of praise. Uh, but Stephen got the first touchdown. Um, yep. Stephen was looking good early. And only because he left the game due to injury – that we aren't uh, possibly talking about him putting up uh, some kind of numbers. So it was great to see those two guys certainly uh, get, get getting that kind of work done and leading the way. Um, I want to make mention of one thing before we get too far along on this uh, this offensive discussion, and this is more of a philosophy thing. Um, okay. What was going through Clay Helton's mind uh, really, really for two and a half years plus um, as he's, turning over play calling to T. Martin more and more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite what Clay would be doing. Yeah. How yeah. tough is that for a coach when it works? But is it working as much as you think it would? That's always an interesting thing with a football coach. How hard is that to turn that over if you are Clay Helton? And, and right. Doing that. right. I just think it was really interesting. And how how much but, is that? But, but like Lynn Swan, Lynn Swan coming in and saying, "Hey, man, you got to do this." Right. But but think about think about the time. Okay. Clay uh-huh. was arguably still an inexperienced head coach, and we have to take some credit for the decisions that he made at that time, because uh-huh. as a head coach, he was so compelled to hide behind his script that. Other areas of the game were were lacking, those attention to details. Some of those mm-hmm. details that he's gotten better at because he removed himself from the thing that he held on so closely, so dearly. So at that time, it was the right thing for him to do, was to relinquish the play callings to somebody that he trusted so that he can round out his experience as a head coach. Oh, no doubt. More no doubt. of that um, CEO-like figure. But you're right. Mm-hmm. But what took him so long when things start to unhinge and get away from what he knew, what took him so long to make a decision? Was it his loyalty uh, to, um, to T. Martin, or was it trying to give the offense a chance to divorce itself from him and allow for T. to feel like it was his show? Because bear in mind, last year with Ty Helton, T. perhaps the argument was, well, He's not 100% the offensive coordinator. So there was a lot of questions circulating around that. But so how much of mm-hmm. that was factoring, you know, into his decision to give T some time? Mm-hmm. Oh, it all so, goes into it, yes. It's really interesting. And, again, the Lynn Swan factor. Yeah, you know, yeah. hey, we, we've all been in situations where, you know, it takes some a third party, someone from the outside to say, hey, why, you know, why are you looking at things this way? You know, how come you're right, looking at things right, this right. way? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, sometimes okay. you, you need that nudge, you know. Yeah. But but Gary, I, I kind of want to go back one moment because you mentioned something that I I think that shouldn't be overstated. Um, Michael Pittman Jr. 
you can make the argument that he's been one of the hottest receivers in the country yes. over the last yes. few weeks. And when you lose him at a time where where you did, where the offense was heavily reliant upon his production, and you don't miss a beat, that's especially like we talked about on the road in Corvallis on a very controversial week, where this thing could have unhinged very very quickly, but the offense galvanized this team. It, it it's almost like the offense put the rest of the team on its back because the defense struggled. I mean, just struggled really to kind of find his rhythm in areas. Um, and for for them to have that 17-play drive and then follow that up with a very explosive four-play for 68 yards, then, um, you know, their third touchdown was 11 plays, 81. You follow that up after a couple of um, Oregon State rallies, right? Eight plays, 67. One play, mm-hmm. 62. Nine for 52 um, to end the game, right? What are we noticing here? Every drive was over 50 yards, and that's that's quite the contrast compared to the amount of three and outs that we saw for a number of weeks that just really frustrated us as fans and, and probably well, well, frustrated well, the defense that they weren't getting complimentary football coming out of that offense. What, did we have nine of them a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Nine three and outs? I, unheard um, of. Daryl, you said over a stat as you were getting ready. These are these are really nice numbers here. Uh, eight of fourteen on third down conversion, two of two on fourth down. When was the last time we converted on fourth down? Let alone go eight of fourteen on third down. It's you been so me that long that before the game, I'll take it. <laughs> exactly, and it has been so long that the, you know because the offense has been so anemic in terms of just just finding a rhythm that they that they can they can fall behind. But the way that uh, and again, give a lot of credit to Tim Drevno. Maybe he just simplified. Yes. It. Maybe he made it easy, dude. Let's just go back to big on big. You block who's in front of you. Whatever the case might be, but the rhythm of how they chipped and they were able to get to that second level in, um, of defenders to allow for whether it was Vavai, Carr, or more, more importantly, Ware. To me, Ware looked the way that he was running um, last night effectively in Corvallis. He looked more like Rojo, Ronald Jones, than anybody else because the way that he hit the hole and then at the point of contact, he accelerated into the defender, and it was almost like a a ping pong. He bounced off the defenders, and yards after contact cannot be undervalued in this game because they have plenty of opportunities. And for me, I, I know that there's a number of different plays, Gary, but the one play that really stood out to me, believe it or not, was there was a third and 19 right before USC goes for it on fourth down, and they pick up 18 yards, I think it was with Babai. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, he gets the, the running back gets 18 yards out of the 19 that they needed to put them right. in position for a fourth down conversion. That came from the running play. In weeks past, that – always spell a recipe for pass. And I think Oregon State anticipated it to be a pass play. And I think I that USC that. caught them off guard with that. One of my favorite plays, favorite moments of the game, was when uh, so uh scores a touchdown and mm-hmm. gives himself a little dance. Okay, yeah. Mr. Ref, you want, you want to throw a celebration? Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, <laughs> because for me, that, that dance just felt like it was just shaking off a, just a lot of frustration. 
And yep. to see that joy come back to this offense where they were they were they had a bounce to them. Um, if you were to tell, if you were to may, maybe silently pull many of these players, they didn't know what to expect coming into this game, Gary. You know, because not, many of them had not benefited from the play calling of uh, Clay Helton. You know, they know him as the head coach, but to hear that presence on the sideline and to watch how they, how they rotated in and out players, there were times when they needed the must-needed yards, they tampered with formations. We saw 12 mm-hmm. personnel, one running back, two tight ends. But instead of them balancing out the tight ends, they created um, an unbalanced look, end over slot. They put the tight ends on the same side, though the the left side, which would have been the wide side of the field, to create a short edge. And that really, you can tell that Oregon State did not have enough time to go back three or four years to prepare for a Clay Helton coached offense, considering the weeks past, we we never saw any one of the USC quarterbacks under center. So there's a lot of little things that you can love and appreciate at a, as a, a vintage USC uh, fan and a historian like yourself. I know you had to be proud to see Vivai Malapiai uh, playing that uh, fullback role. Granted, two tailbacks, but if you're going to put somebody there, who better than to put the size of Vivai? Well, you and I talked. I brought up one of your former teammates, Malafo McKenzie. That's who that reminded me of. It did. It, very much so. And with the, a lot of similarities the in their game, too, by the way. Oh, sure. A lot of similarities sure. in their game. And Mal was used a lot as a fullback in the later end of his career. Um, yep. And so, yeah, seeing Vavai in that role. Uh, I want to make one quick point on Drevno. Uh, and, and that is during one of the interviews he gave beforehand, um, and he was making clear these are not going to be – I'm not going to come in here and passively make changes. And so just what you were saying, there was a lot of different looks that were old school looks. Drevno didn't waste any time coming in and putting his stamp on some of the things the offense is doing. I look forward to seeing where it goes more from here as well. Uh, but he was also quick to say and point out, hey, that was uh, – just because I was one game coordinator – I was the running back coach. Right. Steve Martin was right. the offensive coordinator. Neil Calloway was the offensive line coach. And so it was just his way of saying, um, my stamp comes now. So if you thought my stamp was coming back then, it was not. Right. And if we're going to take, uh, for what you can interpret from athletic director Lynn Swan and take him at his word that uh-huh. he's going to give Clay an opportunity to kind of reset this program and redefine himself before he makes a long-term evaluation. Um, let's think about the, the impact of, of a game like this and if it's sustainable, which it feels like it can be in terms of committing uh-huh. 44 carries, you know, and, uh-huh. and really keeping um, uh, Ooh, the like quarterbacks the under that pitch count. We, we, uh-huh. we agreed early in the season that we like when the pitch count is under 30 attempts. Okay? But think about this. Now, when they're going out to evaluate talent in terms of recruits coming in, when you're going out and you're looking for um, those versatile, athletic, offensive linemen, you can sell games like this and say, man, if I can plug you into these positions, you can mm-hmm. have success here. You know, mm-hmm. And if you're a running back and you say, yeah, okay, we struggled early in the season, but we made some changes – and you see a guy who waited his turn for three years, but behind you know some great talented running backs in, in Aka Cedric Ware, and for him to have a 200-yard game, 
um, and in the same backfield, share that with Vavai Malapiai, who had 100 yards. And, oh, by the way, your third running back, who who is just as dynamic, may, you know, left the game early due to potential, the, the injury, but he scored a touchdown. This is the mm-hmm. sharing and caring that, that um, the program has always benefited from in the past. And for a one-game sample size, it felt good to see those running backs be rewarded for keeping their mouths shut over the weeks of frustration when they were ignored. Um, mm-hmm. I loved every bit of what we saw, Gary. But if this team is going to sustain success and the the road leading to Notre Dame um, in that you know uh, that three games down the road, when you're looking at Cal coming into the the Coliseum uh, for homecoming weekend, and then our, the rival game against UCLA. If you're thinking about, okay, is this sustainable? I think that there needs to be a couple of uh, personnel changes on the defensive side of the ball that could equally match the intensity that the offense provided in this game and really prevent mm-hmm. teams from exploiting weaknesses. And so I can't mm-hmm. wait to talk about just those subtleties. Uh, I know that there's obviously a lot of love to give around on this offensive side, but for every yin, there's a yang. And right now, the play in my secondary kept me up last night. Um, it, it, the, the frustration that is mounding. When you think about how corners opposite of Biggie Marshall are getting targeted, and then teams are still targeting Biggie's aggressiveness. Um, help me, humor me here, Gary. Okay, with the amount of veteran experience that a Jane Harris has, why wouldn't Clancy Pendergast consider moving him to corner, leaving um, Jonathan Lockett, who I think is playing exceptional, having come back from the injuries, at the slot corner, um, and then bringing in the C.J. Pollard, who arguably has a lot of experience uh, in terms of being um, uh, uh, of understanding of the defense, but maybe doesn't have the amount of reps to uh, to gain Clancy's trust. But what does the depth chart uh, rotation look like when you put a J.N.A. Harris at that corner position who has six interceptions to his record, three for touchdowns, opposite of, of Biggie, and then you got Jonathan Lockett, who's a smart, savvy corner, playing the slot. I think that that right there would shore up a lot of the confusion and, and, and provide the defense confidence moving forward. Because if you don't like what you're getting out of CJ, you can always bounce a JNA back there and then go back to what you're getting. But I, I, can, I can make the argument that it can be no worse than what you're getting right now, if not an improvement, uh, by moving a JNA to corner for the remaining couple of games. I, I, I am certainly going to defer to you when it comes to the position of cornerback. Um, and I understand the thought process. I, I think what allows the thought process of what you're saying right now is the fact that Jonathan Lockett has come back to the point that he is, and that would right. allow you to make that move. Before before Jonathan had returned, you didn't have that option. But, boy, I've always enjoyed Jonathan's game. Uh, the cerebral aspect of it, is he the most yep. talented guy out there? Maybe not. Maybe not, but, uh, but he no, knows who he is, Gary. But he, he knows, knows who oh, he is. Oh, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. And so, and, 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 and the reason I am bringing this up is because late in the third quarter, early in the fourth quarter, we saw a sample size of this. They for for like a brief period, they moved Jonathan Lockett actually to the outside corner position to spare Langley. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. moved him there 
Ajayne went back to his natural position as a as a um, a slot a nickel corner, and they put C.J. Pollard in at the line. I mean, at the at the uh, strong safety position. And when they made that move, Lockett made a very athletic deflection. And I'm reminded of how special Jonathan Lockett was coming out of modern day in zone sure. coverage. And how much Very he teases us, who, the, those of us who actually have the privilege of going to practice and watching him play. How during camp, fall camp, that he had a run when he was healthy where he was picking the, you know, he was intercepting passes. Felt like if not every practice, every other practice, he was making some type of a, an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see him playing off man corner in this system. But the reason why I'm thinking he's better served in the slot is because I know how much uh, Clancy really wants to run man coverage. And to put an athletic, a J.N.A. Harris, who's been in this system, been in this program, at that corner position, I'd love to see him, the athleticism uh, of his game, really featured against high-caliber wide receivers moving forward. Okay, and then let me ask you, how much does it impact uh this thought that you're throwing out there how, with the advancement of CJ's game. There is obviously a reason earlier this year when we started to lose safeties that Clancy kept on going down the pecking order of safety, but when he got to CJ, he instead decided to move a JNA back. There was something about CJ's game that wasn't there yet in Clancy's yeah. mind. Right. Um, right. Uh, have we seen enough from CJ since then? Yesterday, yesterday he made some plays. Um, right, right. Now, now let, let me speak plan. to that really quick, Gary, because yeah. with CJ's game, CJ has had a tremendous amount of success in this program hovering around the line of scrimmage. But where mm-hmm. I think the trust factor isn't quite there yet is can you trust him when he has to babysit the middle of the field, covering down on his landmarks? Can you trust that he isn't going to uh, peek into the backfield and be where he needs to be? I think that um, his physicality around the line of scrimmage that this defense can benefit from, but the defense calls for more of a seesaw component where there are times where Tell flips from the free safety position and then he moves in the box when the offense runs, a, let's say, a motion set that, that takes it from a balance set to an off-balance set where uh, Tell might be the, uh, initially starting as a free safety and then now he's rotating in the box. It's that communication where the only way you're going to gain that kind of communication and, and trust is the experience on the field. But when I say that, I would rather risk uh, putting CJ in the game under those circumstances versus a corner who constantly is being targeted and is going to give up more um, momentum plays than a safety who may find themselves slightly out of position at times. I would much rather... If you're going to give up something, I'd much rather give up that element of the game and put my most athletic and versatile uh, secondary players in a position of strength. Because by putting a J.N.A. Harris out there on the edges may be the difference between Christian Rector having three sacks and Jay Tufele uh, having a historical game in, uh, from the interior part of the line because they have mm-hmm. that extra step to collapse the pocket. The the defensive line needs the secondary every bit as much. But with that being said, Gary, we also have to take pressure off of the corners. 
if you're Clancy Pendergast. And what made um, Enchino Nuoso so great was his understanding of angles. He positioned himself, even when he blitzed, he blitzed from depth. He wasn't always hovered around the line of scrimmage. He took away those quick hot routes, those slants, because he knew on his on his path to the quarterback, if he wasn't able to get there, he used his long arm stretch to, to get those deflections. The linebackers have to aid these corners in taking away those hot routes by their alignment. Just deter the quarterback from making that quick hot throw will obviously give that interior defensive line an opportunity to create the pressure, but more importantly, it will allow for the corners to start playing with leverage. Right now, they're thinking too hard, but I am going to have to, I have gripe with the way that the secondary is being coached up at the corner position, because I saw right before halftime, Isaiah Langley using a crab-like technique, where he cocked his hips parallel or uh, parallel to the sideline which meant that he's perpendicular to the line of scrimmage. And by doing that, you're inviting the receiver to run a fade route. But you're turning your back to the quarterback, and you're obviously declaring that you're in a man coverage. You can't do that. That's why I can't trust you if you're out there doing it, uh, performing techniques like that. And if it's not being corrected on the field, then he has to come out of the game. Because you're a liability to the other 10 guys who are maybe hiding and disguising the fronts that they're running, and you're now deliberately giving it up because you don't have the confidence to execute the technique at this juncture the way that you're being taught. That's very, very frustrating, and because of that, I think it's too late for, for you to go back to the fundamentals of it. There is no bye week. you got to mix things up and put a formula back there that's going to give – the rest of your defense an opportunity to be successful and to get these offenses off the field. Let me uh, let me give one last point here on the defense. Uh, I do think you're Chris. Uh, I, I'm saying C.J. Pollard, but I'm thinking Chris Hawkins, Daryl. That's okay. who he reminds me of. Chris in so many ways. The way that Chris gained his playing time and his, his trust right. in the coaches was his mental game, and I see yep. C.J. being that kind of player as well, a son of a coach. Very yep. cerebral kid, um, and I think the more that CJ gets on the field, that that is where he is going to earn his trust. That's just the way that I see things. So, pardon my slip of the tongue when I said Chris Hawkins right there. Uh, oh yeah. But the, the but, but the one guy I want to mention really quick and having him back in this game was Cameron Smith. Cameron Smith, boy, man, was you know if you're gonna if you're gonna bring him back in on the road, I mean there were times where the mic was open. And I could have sworn I had, I heard him uttering out um, defensive calls, getting guys lined up. But you know where, in my opinion, where, where his value came in the most? It, it had to be that fake field goal that they tried to attempt. Uh, and his recognition of what they were trying to do. It was like, nah, man, we're not fun. We're not going to fall for the banana in the uh, tailpipe. We're not falling <laughs> for the okie doke. You're not going to get us on this play. To, to quote the great Eddie Murphy in um, <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop, we're uh, not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe because they lined up, made it appear as though they were, were going to kick a field goal. They had no intentions on kicking a field goal. No. And, and that, in the way it appeared as though. Cam Smith got the defense out of that into a base front and nearly got his hands on that ball. And, man, it was vintage of Cam, or at least in his early days. Had he have gotten his hands on that ball, I think that, that was pick six the other way. 
But it was just right. great to see how a common presence back in the middle, and not to take anything away from EA, because EA is going to be an exceptional player. But of course. when you when you put that type of experience that Cam has and as much football as he's seen on the field, it is like a calming presence throughout that whole defense. It's that soothing voice in your ear that knows that you're going to be lined up, and nine times out of ten, he's going to put you in a position to be successful. And that's the thing, and I, and I know Trojan fans do appreciate this, but there, I, I mean, when's the last senior player that, that you've seen? I mean, I'm going to go on the defensive side of the ball. It was just so far ahead, of, so far advanced in yeah. that mental part of the game. Uh, yeah. So comforting to have out there to where Cameron Smith is right now. Appreciate him, everybody, and I know you do. I know. Yeah, you, you know, and these are decade generational uh, players. Um, you know, he, he's not built like, uh, some of the, the other great linebackers who've won the right. buckets, but, um, like Chris Claiborne, but I'll, I'll take a Cam Smith any day of the year, mm-hmm. any day of the week to go into battle with in these trenches because he is just like you said, um, he doesn't make the same mistake twice. And, uh, and more importantly, when you're a younger cat like Houston, you benefit. You've had the privilege of benefiting playing alongside of him. And Houston, John Houston, is a smart player in his own right. But when you have a savant that that can pretty much read a play before the play ever ever happens, because of his film study, because of the amount of football that he's seen, it it, it really helps you in your defensive line to to, to have that because the, the this defense missed that voice on the mm-hmm. field with them in the trenches but especially on the road in Corvallis where a lot of things can go go haywire because of communication issues. Um, kudos to him for making his way back, and he had, an, he had a great game in his own right in Cam Smith. Yeah. yeah so that but but, but what can you say about Christian Rector starting to heat things up in Jay uh, Tufele in the interior? Both of them recorded mm-hmm. multiple sacks. Um, you felt like that defensive line is starting to heat things up. And you know what I want to say on that, Daryl? When, when did Christian Rector have his first success last year? When he was most, when he was playing a lot outside after yep. Porter went down. Yep. And after Porter went down. The same thing happened this year. Yeah. Right, right. And, and we think about how Christian has been used this year. I mean, he's uh-huh. been really playing out of position all year long, being bounced around um, on that defensive line to create matchups. But people, uh, but players like Christian Rector are creatures of habit. Just look, man, let them put a foot in the dirt and let them just go at it. You know, yeah. line up, not have to yeah. think about things and just use their athleticism. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, I expect great things from him this, over the next few weeks because, like you said, he's starting to heat things up. And he is he, he can be a force to be reckoned with um, if you're looking for somebody that's going to replace that type of production. But interior, um, the month of October and November has been very generous to Tufele. Uh, from his interception uh, against Utah to the way that he's been heating things up interior, and early on they're make they're giving offenses fits when they try to run that ball. You know they're like a stop plug up there um, on short yardage, and that's why mm-hmm. I think that if, if if the defensive secondary can play complementary football, um, this defense can find itself 
playing better than it has all season long. And that's what it's going to take to, to, to really try to finish this season out on a high note. And, and, like, and like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, uh, who knows what's going to happen over the next three weeks. Uh, but if you're looking at the possibility of a USC football team for, for, for all that has happened this year, if you're going to tell me the possibility is there to play in the Rose Bowl? Isn't uh, that amazing? Okay. I mean, since last week, I hadn't even, I, I couldn't even fathom the possibilities of USC playing in a traditional oh. Rose Bowl. Now, it is worth to be noted that this year the Rose Bowl is not a part of, of the playoff championship series. So as a uh-huh. result of that, right, um, the, the benefit of a uh, Pac-12, Big Ten traditional rivalry is still up there. And mm-hmm. when you think about the road that USC would have to take, first and foremost, they would have to win out. They have to win at home in the Coliseum versus uh, Cal, uh, who is two and four um, in, in you know uh, up in the division, up in the Pac-12 North. And then you got UCLA, um, who is struggling at two and seven. So you, you think about their road, and then of course you follow that off with Notre Dame, but that doesn't count in terms of the big uh, the Pac-12 South. Mm-hmm. But man. Mm-hmm. Arizona State, okay, they took care of business against Utah, but then they still have UCLA at home. Then they're on the road against Oregon and on the road against Arizona, okay? Um, last I checked, they were like 1-3 on the road with their only victory coming in the Coliseum to USC, which still frustrates yeah. me. But then Utah Utah loses their, their quarterback, Tyler Huntley, uh, and they still have Oregon, and then they go at, they're at Colorado. All of a sudden, Gary – if USC just takes care of business and they just kind of focus on playing good football like we saw this past weekend uh, against under, uh, you know, uh, um, teams that are that are that are underperforming, they can get hot at the right time. And those other teams still have an uphill battle. Like you said, it, it's not it's not far fetched uh, for for um for this team to find themselves contending for the a Pac-12 championship berth against the likes of it appears to be a Washington State again. It, it would be very interesting. Um, of course, there's also the possibility of a Holiday Bowl or somewhere along those right. lines, so we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves here. But uh, right. this, this, this week was – what an interesting week. Just what, from, from where we sat last week to where we are sitting now, boy, that uh, just a very interesting week in USC football. So look forward to seeing where we're at next week after a homecoming game against Cal. So for Darrow Doe, this is Gary Pasquitz. You're listening to the We RSC Podcast.